ask permission <coughs> permission from Venerable Ajahn Anan, the senior monks at Vaimapjan, <coughs> the other monks, for permission to speak on this important occasion of Venerable Ajahn Anan's 69th birthday and blessings to all the laity. So today I have a very good opportunity to share a few uh, teachings or maybe just a few stories that I remember of my time when I was in Wat Mapchan. <clears throat> so currently now I'm in Sydney, Australia. Monastery here is uh, Bodhisattva Forest Monastery. Be considered, I guess, a branch of Wat Mapchan. So I couldn't make it for this year's uh, birthday to be there personally. But uh, Venerable Ajahnanan has asked me to uh, have this session and just share with you a bit of Dhamma and hopefully it can be for your uh, inspiration uh, in your own Dhamma practice. <clears throat> uh, so today I'd like to just begin with uh, recollecting uh, of how fortunate we are. This is a online meditation retreat led by uh, a Krubhajan, a great teacher, Venerable Ajahnanan, who's had the kindness and compassion for us all. And he's uh, made this possible. And many of you are able then to uh, come and join from your own countries. Maybe it's almost like being there in person. Uh, and we all have faith in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha. You all have interest in Dhamma practice. Uh, we're all able to, to join like this. For myself, I uh, recollect that I'm very fortunate that I was able to go to Wat Mapchan and ordain there. Um, it was about, what, 17 years now. And uh, Venerable Ajahnanan had the kindness and compassion to accept me uh, train me, and I had the good fortune to be able to attend on him for uh, almost 10 years. Um, and if we maybe go back a bit more, all this online uh, retreat, uh, these sessions on Zoom were possible uh, from uh, 2014, where Venerable Ajahnanan went to the uh, meeting, the annual meeting in Wat Nongpapong in June of 2014. And it was his idea to start having a regular weekly session on Fridays uh, and to Singapore. And at the beginning, it was just that NDR center. Um, and he asked me to contact them. And so he contacted them. And he basically said that he's, he wanted to do this. And I guess the junior monks just had to kind of make it happen. And back then, it wasn't like these days. Uh, the internet was definitely no good. I think we used a phone maybe um, for that connection and uh, having to find the software and basically trying out every, how do you call video conferencing software at the time and found that our oh, zoom was the best one i just looked it up that zoom only started in 2011 so you can see how early uh, it was that we begun this and so we started the session and then Bandautama joined uh, kitarama joined and one other place i can't quite remember the name uh, but you could see the kindness and compassion of Venerable Ajahn Anan, that he could see the benefit of this technology and uh, was willing to share the Dhamma, spread the Dhamma in this way. And 
he also had the uh, determination, or you say the satcha, to carry it on every week, um, even when there was times when he was ill, when he had his heart problem, uh, but he still carried on with it. And on the outside, you couldn't really tell that he was, you know, tired and, and maybe not in the best uh, shape. Basically, he said to us that he wouldn't be able to understand what he's going through. Um, but he had the endurance, the patience and kindness and compassion to, to continue it. I remember even when he went to Australia, they'd bring some of the equipment and they streamed it from Bodhikasuma, the center in the city, uh, to keep it going. And so people could keep joining. It was that type of, you could say, determination that he, he had. And so we're very fortunate uh, that then after COVID emerged, it was straight away that the compassion was to have this session every day. And he could give teachings. I'm sure many of you benefited from that. So you're very, very uh, fortunate. Um, whereas maybe other places had to adjust to having different technology. We'd already done it for many years already. Um, so just reflecting on that. Um, so this was able to arise that these retreats uh, could happen. And so we have a lot of uh, gratitude. And especially today is the day where I'll be talking a bit more about my experiences in what Mapchan because uh, hopefully, I'm sure all of us is kind of, we're all uh, have the faith here in the Krubhajan and Renbhajan Anan. So please, some of this can inspire you. Um, but just re reflecting on all these good things that we have going for us is, it's kind of, we're very fortunate and it's like we shouldn't, um, it shouldn't be hard for us you know, to grow and develop our minds, to have already this much faith uh, confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, in the Krubhajan, uh, that we should be able to put these teachings into practice and that we should be able to use all our experiences in our life and use them to reflect on and to understand more about the Dhamma uh, through this, um, understand more about suffering whenever it uh, arises we experience it we should be able to uh, learn from it you know we take it as something that oh this is a something we're going to practice and learn and develop wisdom from um, it's within our capability uh, we've got everything going for us including our mindfulness and wisdom and so just reminding ourselves of this and this should um, kind of inspire us to keep putting in consistent effort into our practice and doing retreats such as this. Uh, we are very fortunate that we can say we have uh, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, like we heard earlier in the talk uh, that Venerable Ajahn Anand gave earlier this morning. Um, you, well, from, my, from what I notice is that every birthday, he'll always, um, recollect Ajahn Chah saying of how, you know, this is the tradition that Ajahn Chah had and they would go and respect uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah on that occasion. And he's uh, reminding of, you know, we, all this could arise because of the Barami of the Buddha. Uh, and so all, all of us are so fortunate in that, in that way. Um, the Buddha said that if we take the Buddha as our best friend, uh, then we can rely on him uh, to take us out of suffering. Uh, so we all have the Buddha as our best friend, and we all have uh, Venerable Ajahn Anan as our, we can say in one way, Kalyanamita, our good friend, uh, that he imbues all those qualities that uh, the Buddha said of a good friend. Um, that they are well-respected, uh, lovable, they give us deep teachings, uh, they're interested in our well-being, they take us away from the bad path and lead us onto the good path. Um, they are willing to admonish us, 
you know, even if it's sometimes harsh. And, you know, these are good qualities that, that I've seen that uh, we can take Venerable Ajahnan as our good friend. And also having a Kalyana Mitta like this, it leads us to uh, be taken out of uh, suffering or we are following the Noble Eightfold Path. Like we'll hear in many of Venerable Ajahnanan's teachings of Sila, Samadhi and Banya, he's always trying to push us to put effort in to the practice in that way. Um, and the Buddha also said that uh, there's three people that are very helpful to one, and that is a person who uh, helps one to uh, take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha. The next is one who uh, helps us to understand, you can say, the noble truth into suffering, the cause, uh, the cessation and the path leading to the ending of suffering. And the third is one who helps us to become liberated, ending the defilements in the, in the mind. Uh, so this is, again, another, uh, we can reflect that this is something that's very helpful for us and that, uh, again, that we get from all these teachings uh, from Venerable Ajahn Anand. And the Buddha also said that someone like this is just very hard to repay. Uh, we, even if we give our homage, our veneration, uh, we greet, we, we give and offer the four requisites, it's still uh, very hard to repay all that helpfulness that we've received by um, being able to take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, being able to seek more clearly into the Four Noble Truths and, and of course, uh, leading to liberation and the ending of suffering. Uh, so I want to talk today a bit more about this puja that we say is a padipada puja, giving our uh, practice as homage. So puja has a few factors to it. Uh, you could say the one part is this offerings and veneration. Uh, one part is the feeling uh, love, concern, um, feeling closeness. Another part is the bowing, the forms of respect. Uh, and the other part is the recognizing the virtues and the goodness that that individual has and respecting and worship, or maybe not worshiping and giving them puja, homage, um, because we recognize those virtues. And so the first virtue is metta. metta. Some of you may have been to Wat Mapjan. I've heard many people say that they step through the, the front gate and they already feel this, they can say something or metta or something there. Um, and I'd like to think that it's Venerable Ajahnanan's Nuns metta or the power of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha that is imbued in, in that place. Um, but to talk about metta is we translate it as goodwill, friendliness, uh, love, even loving kindness. There's all these words, but metta is one of those qualities that uh, is very important, very fundamental to the practice, to our minds. It's considered a, a long-standing. Uh, basically, it's never wrong. No wise person would ever argue that. Metta is something you shouldn't have, that you shouldn't develop. Um, so it's always kind of right. Um, and it leads to having, being free from wanting to harm, having any ill will. Um, and I'm sure you, you've heard this in many talks about metta, uh, but specifically want to just see some uh, factors or, or, or some instances of this metta that I personally felt from, from Venerable Ajahn Anand, and I'm sure many of you who've maybe been close to him have also experienced. The first part is, I could say, the care and concern that uh, he would have uh, to others. And uh, when you, if you're in the monastery, he has a very caring, you know, he's always looking out for any monks that are sick, 
um, or concerned about how this and that monk are doing. Maybe the people in the kitchen who stay there, he'd be concerned about their welfare. Maybe people visiting from overseas, he'd be looking out, making sure they've got uh, proper accommodation, etc. Or maybe the parents of monks come, he's willing to give them time and to inspire them in Dhamma. Um, so there's all this care and concern. Uh, for myself, I uh, had a time when I, when I was first ordained there, and I remember that after the first rains retreat that Venerable Ajahn gave the teaching to the monks that uh, after the rains, uh, you should follow what Ajahn Chah said of uh, putting up your umbrella net in the forest, <clears throat> uh, even in the monastery, uh, you should do that. So in, in other words, get down from your kuti and, and stay in under a tree. And so you know, very inspired by that. So I put up my umbrella net under the near the Bodhi tree, which these days is a bit not so forested, but back then it was all grass and you could stay there. And so I did that. And then I think it was like 15 years later or something that uh, one senior monk came to tell me that, oh, back then, uh, I, I was massaging Venerable Ajahnanan and he told me, oh, there's, uh, you know, Larry's out there in the, putting his cot up there, go check on him. And then, uh, so the monk went to go check on me and he's, he, he came back to Venerable Ajahnanan and said, oh yeah, he's, he's meditating there. And so he had nothing to, to worry about, or maybe you could say fortunately I was meditating or something. But, uh, you know, he's just seeing that you know, concern that I'd be okay, especially just coming from Australia, maybe not used to, you could say living under a tree. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, one of the concern and, and many people would have uh, experienced something like this. You know, sometimes he's writing personal letters uh, to, or messages maybe these days to people. Uh, remember once he, someone who had uh, cancer and they were very worried and wishing for blessings and Venerable Ajahn Nuns told me to translate a letter for them uh, just saying that uh, don't lose hope you know you think of uh, do your morning and evening chanting and ask the Buddha for your, uh, your blessings and environment to be able to overcome your sickness and something like that maybe it's just a small thing but I think it really inspired uh, that person and he's, he's, he overcame that, that sickness as well. Um, uh, the next part of metta is maybe encouragement. I feel like he really encourages us to continue on developing goodness, inspiring us to, to keep practicing. Uh, you could see sometimes on big days, um, there's many, you know, maybe a thousand people and he would take the time to go into the, the kitchen area in the monastery, see that people are, you know, maybe washing dishes, um, cleaning up, basically um, inspiring them that their self-sacrifice there to volunteer to help is really meaningful. And then people, when they see him, they're very inspired and sort of uplifted that the great teachers come to, to personally sort of look on us, uh, look over us, and, you know, they're very happy to do all those those things. But he would take the time to, to do that. Um, going for arms in the morning, making sure that people had chances to, to make merit and goodness uh, every morning, every day, when people would, you know, come very early to wait, wait there for him and the monks there, giving them encouragement to do that type of goodness as well. Um, in the practice as well you know, maybe finding different methods for us to keep going in our meditation. I remember one retreat that we had, uh, he had us to, and all the lay people as well, to hold a cup of water as a way to develop mindfulness, a full cup of water. So we had to try to sit there and try to, uh, I guess that would stop people from falling asleep uh, in their meditation. Maybe this was a daytime session where maybe people might be a bit more drowsy than usual. So I remember we had to try that that out. Um, it was once when uh, he would really, in the evening chanting, he would turn around when we're sitting meditation and lead the group. That's another inspiring sort of thing that helping people to practice. And he'd get out the uh, 
sort of a whisk. You could say that the, the monks use for the blessing, uh, not to not to uh, hit us or anything, but just to um, just tap it gently on his hand. If people were anyone, including the monks, were sort of nodding off, and then you know that he's uh, watching, sort of, and you'd be up sitting straight like this. So that's just another way of his sort of kindness. There was one rains retreat where he was very, uh, you could say, trying to lift, uplift the monks' practice a lot. And he'd said to us that, oh, uh, the, the gilesas are testing him, the defilements are testing him if he's able to uh, overcome them enough to lift up the, the disciples' um, practice, basically the defilements of, of everyone were testing him if he was good enough to, to sort of uh, uplift his students to overcome them. Uh, but yeah, there's all these sort of inspiring stories. <laughs> uh, so we had, um, yeah, sometimes even if some had monks had doubts in the practice, he'd also be able to reassure them. You know, monks would come and maybe, you know, having a sense of self, you could say every, their problems were so important coming there and he'd have to sort of solve it right now um, and he'd just say just keep watching it keep watching it and it's true you know you watch it and watch it and then it passes and that problem could go away by itself maybe he's had a lot of experience as well about you know sort of monks needs and things but you know that that teaching of just watch it and something we can use ourselves as well in our own practice yeah things may come up very important things that have to be solved just keep watching they'll pass on their own including doubts sometimes there's uh, if monks have sort of aversion or they've got you know maybe to someone else he'd bring up different teachings to try to help them in the teaching of uh, you know take up a teaching just imagine a, a mango you just eat the good part of the mango the the rotten bits just throw it away in that way when you're dealing with other people only look at the good parts take the good parts don't uh, take the rotten bit just throw that away that's of no use um, so it also very skillful methods as well that he'd use of maybe for monks to to make determinations in their practice maybe chanting iti piso 108 times uh, walking around the the stupa, the chedi, 108 times, uh, different things to sort of uh, uplift people's practice and make them, you know, you'd find the the value of of that. Um, and basically, you could say it comes down to that, giving us inspiration that we can do it, we can improve our minds, we can basically see the paths and fruits of nibbana. It should be. Uh, something that we all can do and and you know when we hear that from the teacher we're more inspired then to put more efforts maybe it becomes a bit closer to us and we feel like we can we can really get there uh, and sometimes his kindness his metta was to us personally um, but not to the defilements in this way i mean that some of the things he'd suggest to you maybe would go a against uh, the defilements and you would feel very sort of it'd be tough to do basically but it'd be for your own benefit there was once uh, one monk he shared the story to me the thai monk and he had taken up made the determination to practice staying up uh, all night that we call nessa chick in thai or nessa chick or sitters practice and so in the Ajahn Chah tradition, we kind of practice that at, through the night, but he had made the determination to do it uh, for one month. And so every night he'd be practicing like this. And, and he told me, oh, he was counting down the days. So he had, you know, from 30 down to four days left. And he's like, okay, now, you know, I'll be able to rest properly at night, etc." cetera. Um, so he's looking forward to it. And then on that fourth day, he said that Venerable Ajahn Anand called him over and said, ah, do you want to see the Dhamma? 
And then this monk, he said, he thought to himself, uh, you know, if I answer no, it's kind of very disrespectful and maybe bad karma as well. But if I answer yes, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get something that's going to be tough to do. And so he said, yes, you know, Ajahn Mpah, I want to see the Dhamma. Or he just said yes. And then, uh, then, he's, then Venerable Ajahn said, okay, good. Uh, keep the practice up for another three months. <clears throat> and then this monk could only answer one word, which was krap. <laughs> if you know any Thai, if you just say krap, that means okay, yes. <laughs> so sometimes he'd be pushing, but of course that monk had that inspiration to push him further and because out of his respect for the teacher, you know, he could push him further than he thought he could do. And of course, he would gain the, the benefits uh, from that. But of course, the defilements aren't going to be too happy uh, about that. But maybe once you pass a certain level, then you can overcome it. Sometimes Venerable Nun would tell the monks of like, you just have to keep going and enduring to the point where you feel like you're almost about to die. And then you'll pass it. Huh? Just like drowsiness, if you feel like you're right to the end of how much you can endure, if you endure a bit more, then you'll be able to overcome it and pass it. So in that way, he was, uh, you could say, you know, training the, the, the monk in that way. So that's a story that he, he shared me. Um, you know, sometimes maybe he would even punish monks, but of course in a non-physical way uh, or you know, if they maybe should have been going to say morning chanting and they hadn't, for he may tell them, "Oh, go eat just plain rice or something." So you may have heard his, him say that as a suggestion to some of you to overcome certain things. Uh, you know, he's he's actually he might have given it more uh, as a way to overcome certain uh, defilements to to the monks as well. So, okay, that day eat plain rice or maybe do chanting in front of the lay people, something like that. Um, <clears throat> I guess another thing is that he'd even give teachings about what metta was. Sometimes we feel like we have so much metta. Some people, oh, I oh, spread metta all the time. I'm, I'm imbued with metta. Uh, there was once when I remember he, we were going back from uh, it's overseas and we'd taking the van back to the monastery and all the, what do you call it? The blinds were, were closed in this van and I was sitting up front and the, apparently the one at front's meant to have the duty to keep the driver, you know, driving safely. And so the, there was this really crazy driver sort of cutting in and out and he cut in front of him and then sped off. And I thought to myself, oh, I better say something to the driver to make sure he's safe, you know, he won't get angry. So I told him, don't worry about it, you know, forget about it. The karma will, will, will get him or something, you know, he let him receive his own karma. Then straight away from the back in that row where the blinds were closed, Venerable just says out loud, may they be well, uh, may, they be, may they be safe, oh, sorry, may they be safe. Uh, they're, maybe they're uh, going to the hospital to give birth. And I had a look and I thought, you know, there's no way that you could see that, whether it's someone giving birth or not, obviously. <laughs> but to me, you know, oh, maybe that's a teaching of metta. Metta is, should be to all living beings not just to the ones that you love or you feel good about uh, and wishing everyone to be well, you know, even if they're doing things that are, you know, could be reckless or, or, or stupid or etc. Or even about equanimity, upeka, about, you know, to, to have upeka is about being indifferent, equanimous, you know, people have to receive their own karma, that is true. 
um, but to actually wish or something that someone receives their own karma isn't upeka. You could say that's more like ill will <laughs> or a thought to harm, uh, even just a thought there, you know, not even just obviously no, no sort of uh, bodily or, or verbal action, but just the thought could be tendence, a tendency towards ill will. And so you could say maybe actually Venerabhajanan wasn't, you know, when teaching me more, maybe you could say about uh, having metta or what metta was about, you know, metta should be able to overcome ill will, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty or to harm. <coughs> and at other times, he would point out, you could say, where metta came from, or sorry, when ill will came from. Uh, this was another, you could say, teaching that, that I got, uh, that he, there was once when, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> sorry, there was once when I, you know, so I've, I've been living in, you know, Sydney for so long, I was born here, you know, we don't tend to have in the city too many snakes, um, but when I went to the forests of Wat Mapchan, then it was once when basically I had to jump over a pit viper and it basically tried to strike me as well and it, somehow it missed me. But basically after that, I had a bit of a, you could say even a phobia about uh, snakes, thinking that, oh, any branch must be a snake kind of thing. <laughs> there was a sort of a joke in what Mapchan later on after one Westerner had been bitten there that uh, the Thais would see a stick and think it's a snake, but a Westerner might think that a, see a snake and think it's a stick. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of what happened to me. But anyway, what, um, so yeah, I had that. And I, I can't remember how much later on it was, but I was at the, we posted a hall at the back of the, before going to evening chanting one day. And, uh, Venerable Ajananan's other monk, like you could say, monk who helped helped him out, another attendant monk, he brought up one of these fake snakes. You know, the snakes are actually uh, wooden out of wood, and they kind of uh, what do you call it? Rig yeah, wriggle, like a move like a snake, basically. And so this monk started to move it right in front of me like this, and I'm like, whoa, you know. You know, it's like shivering a little bit like this. And the Venerable Ajahn nuns there and said, look, you know, uh, this uh, contemplate about sanya, which is perception. And I said something like, oh, no, it's still don't like it or something like that to him. Um, but that was a teaching that you could say he gave me to bring up mindfulness with this perception you know, and it's, if you look at maybe the theory of it, you know, once you have sense contact like this, you have a certain feeling come up from that contact um, and it's painful or pleasure, uh, pleasurable or painful or, or neither. So this was obviously a painful one. Um, and then we know what happens next from feeling is craving tanha, which is you have liking or disliking. And obviously this one was disliking, <laughs> but uh, that would lead to attachment to to birth, basically, and all forms of suffering. You could say it's maybe being born in a world where every stick is a snake, you know, or <laughs> the phobia still there carries on. And, and I don't know, maybe you can recognize this in your own life or not, but this was a teaching that, you know, that, that, that I got. And it was like, if we learn about perceptions is that there is the initial perception there, which is normal for everyone. You know, like you see that maybe that snake and you can see it's made out of wood. Um, it's this color gray. Um, it's got this sort of uh, movement, etc. And so there's that, which, which is good, which we need as humans, obviously we need to know what's dangerous, what's not. And this was a snake is dangerous, right? 
Um, but to know the difference between that and something not dangerous, obviously a wooden snake is not dangerous. Um, but after that basic perception is the one that we say, oh, that's the, the one that our mind puts on it again, we can say another, what is say, supplementary uh, perception or the overlapping one maybe is better, overlapping perception. And that's the one of, yeah, I don't like it. I've had this in the past that's hurt me or, you know, but it's been risky and you, we bring that up and there's a type that's coming from defilements. That's the one that leads to greed, hatred, delusion. You know, if, if I was maybe didn't have sealer, then maybe you'd want to harm the snake, kill it, etc., cetera, um, because you have aversion, anger towards it. Um, but if you have maybe more sealer, then maybe you just have aversion, ill will towards it. And so he's pointing at that as bring up the other perception, sanya, of uh, it's, it's impermanent, maybe. It's empty, like contemplate in whatever way for you to understand, bring mindfulness up with that perception. And so uh, if we could see that, then we can overcome it. It's kind of in the way that uh, someone said before, like a, uh, a zebra, maybe they go out into the, you know, they've just seen their, whatever, loved one, uh, whatever, friend, you know, been, been, been killed by a, a lion, uh, but they're out back in the, the field, uh, you know, grazing, you could say, eating, because they need to eat, obviously. Um, and so humans are a bit different to that. You know, we, we could carry things on, have that perception carry on for years and years, and it could still affect us, could be a phobia or fear. Um, and so that's something to contemplate and maybe the ones who's uh, maybe in, we could say enlightened, you know, they've developed that wisdom understanding. Um, they only have that initial perception and do take what's useful, what's not useful, they've seen beyond it and can have let that go. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, teaching a bit about how the ill will sort of arises. <coughs> um, so one other very inspiring quality that I've seen in Venerable Ajahnan over all these years is his purity. Purity here is yeah, very, a very great quality. I compare it to, uh, we had quite a while ago, we had in the monastery here in Sydney, a, a kangaroo, it got caught on a fence. And after getting caught on the fence, we had to call the, these, the, the proper organization to come in and sort of rescue it. And when the volunteer came in, he was just a new guy. Um, he, he saw the, the injured kangaroo and obviously we think kangaroo is cute. So he thought that it's oh, so cute. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Trying to give it food and, and really could see the metta coming from him. And then he uh, goes close to kind of maybe touch it or help it. And the kangaroo out of fear scratches him and he starts bleeding and straight away he, he changes his mood of like, we gotta, we gotta uh, put it down. You got to shoot it, uh, and it just struck me of how much the mood, one's own mood, aram, aram, aramana, can change so quickly like that. Just you know, seeing something you like and you have that sort of metta, but then experiencing something you dislike straight away, you can change. And this is something that being around Anurvajanan, what I found the most inspiring quality was that. He could always uh, sort of, he had so much going on, but whatever it is, it felt like it never carried on to the next, next moment. You know, it was always just taken up. The duty was done towards it and then put down and moved on. Um, and in that way, he could do a lot because of being able to, to let go, put things down. And it felt to me that, out of all these years, I've been so close to, to him that it never really felt like there was any sort of 
lingering greed, hatred or delusion there. You know, there's not that mood. It always felt like it was coming from, from Dhamma or in line with Dhamma. Um, and so in that way that he could always use the self, you could say, in an appropriate way. I remember in this retreat before in the last one, uh, he, I joined, we joined from over here and he would be using a bit of English and it's like, oh, when people heard that, they would, uh, how do you say, feel happy, uh, maybe even laugh a bit. And he'd use that to sort of maybe improve the mood of the whole thing. You know, maybe with a Dhamma talk might be very serious. Everyone's, a very, you know, and then just sort of uplifting people in a different way. Um, and he was very skillful at doing that. Whatever the occasion required, he could uh, use the self in order to, you know, achieve that. At times you see him as a big teacher and that's what he needs to be for all his students and, and disciples. <coughs> but at other times when there's a very senior respected monk, you know, he'd be doing his duties just like a, a, a more junior monk. And that was always very inspiring to see, you know, humbling. And you could see that, oh, that's, you know, that's something that inspired ourselves in our own practice as well. Sometimes he could be very, you know, humorous, like I said just then, um, if the mood required it. But at other times, maybe it's see maybe monks talking a bit too much and he could be very strict as well. And, uh, you know, walking over right there and, and saying something and, you know, it, the mood would change again. And so he's very skillful at, at doing that or using the self. It always felt like it being, it was, uh, you know, not held on to basically. Um, here we had once here, someone who it was not that long ago. This is a, another story from this monastery first is that, you know, there was someone here on a, on a crutch and he came here and he was sitting in the chair and I thought, could just give him is a Thai guy. So yeah, my teaching at that time was, maybe not teaching, something I told, told him was that, oh, um, this, this uh, I shared to him a story of, of this person in Thailand. He, he, he was playing soccer one day. He was my driver for going to the monastery to Wat Mapchan. And so he would, uh, he played soccer, he would play soccer. And at one time he fell over and he, basically broke, fell on his arm and broke it. Um, and the time when he was driving me, telling me this story, he was, had a, had, he was driving with one, one hand basically. And he said that when he fell, he straight away thought of when he was a young boy. And when he was a young boy, he went to the monastery and used a slingshot to shoot birds under the Bodhi tree. And that image came up to him straight away. And for that man then said, oh, for sure what I, I'm re I was receiving my karma from doing that bad action. And he was, he was sure of that and that he was, you could say even happily driving me with just one, one arm. But as I said this story to this, this man with a crutch, this other Westerner on the other side of the room, he lifted up his leg and said that he had a prosthetic leg and I thought, oh, no, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have uh, shared this story or, or what. But he says straight away that, oh, I believe in karma as well. Uh, because when I went to um, the hospital, I had a motorbike accident. And uh, the first thing I heard when I woke up from being unconscious was the doctor was saying, uh, you can take the neck brace off him. And he was so happy hearing this because he knew then, oh, I I'm not going to be paraplegic. I'm not going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And he said, he didn't, he said in hospital the whole time he was very happy, but he had lost his leg. Uh, and in one way, if you just stop here and just say, oh, actually, if you look at it in, one way and just look at that one good thing 
then that could also help you overcome any aversion to or ill will or, or feeling suffering over another thing you know so he said he's very happy and he said that oh he believes in uh, karma he said if you ride a bike a motorbike then i know that i have to accept the risk of riding it um, so every time he rides a bike he knows that he's in risk there's always a danger because you're not safe and i thought wow that was a good a good way to put it and i then said to him that oh that's actually a really good uh, way to look at it but if you expand it a bit more you can see that oh maybe life is similar you know you got on the bike of we call life motorbike of life and you're on this bike and you receive all the thrills the enjoyment the happiness that comes from it right but you also have that danger of getting into an accident of these unfortunate situations but we've chosen already to get on this bike and so we need to accept it like you said accept the risk from it uh, and obviously a motorbike can be used for very useful to go to a to b etc um, and in that way we can also see our life here is very useful that we can build merits build goodness practice the noble eightfold path practice the teachings of the buddha improve ourselves um, but there is a risk with it and so we have to see the risk um, understand the drawbacks and for me the one who's this is my own simile or whatever but the the arahant the enlightened one is one who's seen the drawbacks they've seen clearly into the the motorbike or life and death and they've gotten off it they don't want to get back on it because they know it's dangerous right it's not it's not something that's fun and thrilling and it's not all that and so one who's stepped off it is peaceful and you could say you know that you hear you hear of them saying uh someone who's enlightened arahant is beyond karma they're beyond birth and death beyond good and bad karma and say so maybe what does that mean Lukutara beyond the world it's you know if you say that that world is you know this motorbike they're beyond it because they don't have to receive the karma the good or bad of being on that bike they don't receive the thrills of it but they also don't receive the drawbacks the dangers the suffering from it um, and so then you could say oh that one then is peaceful right they don't they're peaceful from the the motorbike the the birth and death this cycle of birth and death uh, so there that's uh, just a interesting maybe way to to look and understand it that we've yeah we've got on this this bike so we we have to use it wisely and well but ultimately you know we have to see the drawbacks of it so we can get off it you know some people say oh they're so bored of 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 life right someone with who had who came here to the monastery they said they had cancer for the second time they said oh, i'm so bored of life you know it's it's just so much suffering and and yeah i guess that that would be right you can see the suffering there so i just asked them then well if you is a thai person as well <laughs> so if you if you uh had a life where you had no cancer would you want that and they're like yeah of course you know that's what I want and that's kind of it is that we still have this hope this maybe delusion as well if it could just be like this then we'll be okay with it you know but like riding a bike it, it has both sides you can't just take one and not take the other in uh, that way if we're developing our wisdom our understanding in this way so we understand more Uh, so yeah so we're coming today giving a few teachings or maybe not teaching stories as such and maybe you get some teachings from them um, but one thing as well is that we really need to be able to 
open ourselves up to accept these teachings we're given. Sometimes, you know, the sense of self can become very uh, deluded, become so sure of oneself, but the similes of like an open vessel compared to being a overflowing teacup, which Anand's used before saying like that. So we have to be like an open vessel, then we can accept a lot of good things, teachings, etc. Um, and then we'll, we'll learn a lot more, we'll, we'll, we'll grow, we'll, you know, but if it's overflowing teacup, obviously nothing more can, can go in. Uh, so yeah, there was once when we were going on uh, Tudong, you could say, so Ajahn Nun had led us out, the whole group of monks to uh, the forest and we'd, we'd been practicing there. And at the end of the trip, um, we were supposed to drive back to Wat Mapchan. And uh, I had the idea that, oh, let's, let's walk back. Sometimes when I have ideas like this, I, I, it tends to involve other monks as well. <laughs> so another senior monk who, or a few senior monks who didn't, you know, didn't really want to, ended up having to go and walk back as well. So it took about four or five days like that to walk back, um, maybe 100 Ks, I think. And so, yeah, the, this senior monk there was, was told by Ajahn okay, that's a great idea. You go along as well. So anyway, so we'd been walking uh, this one day and we, the, the destination was to get to another monastery, uh, branch monastery by the end of the day. And we'd take a rest there and then continue walking the day after. Uh, so we'd been walking all the way till 11 p.m. because we'd gotten lost and we were nowhere near this monastery at 11 p.m. And uh, the senior monk had a phone then, so he called Venerable Ajahnanan and Venerable Ajahnanan said, all right, I'll send you uh, someone to come pick you up from that monastery, a car, and take you back and you can rest in the monastery. But for myself, I'd made the determination that I'm not gonna get on a car. Uh, that was my own personal determination, not the other monks. And so I heard this and I want to convince the other monks, let's just put up our umbrella nets in the, in the forest. We'll walk, walk the next day, we'll get there for sure. And basically uh, went to the stage where Venerable was telling the, the uh, passing that to tell, told the senior monk to tell me the story of um, Lungta Mahabua, or Ajahn Mahabua, of how he had made a determination once that he wouldn't receive any more food from his, in his alms bowl. So he'd only get what was on alms and anything else in the monastery he wouldn't take. And obviously Lungta Mahabu was, you know, a great Kubajan from our tradition. You're sure that he would follow up whatever he said he would do. And so he'd made that determination and apparently at Venerable Ajahn Man would come, came to him and put some, opened his bowl lid and put some food in there. And Mahapur just had to accept it that, oh, that's, that's uh, given by the teacher, then you have to accept. And he was able to let go of his determination to that, to that point because he was a teacher. And so he, basically hearing this story for myself, I, you know, to break that determination felt like it would burn me up, to be honest. <clears throat> and in the end, I had to accept that, put down my views, my you could say even conceit and ego, then put it down and accept the teachings of the, the teacher. And it was really difficult to do. And so he sent the car and you know, we, then we yeah, got, on, got on the car, got to that monastery. And uh, yeah, so I could say I had a probably good rest that, that night anyway. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes it can be that difficult. And in the talks, sometimes Ajahn Nan tells about how you know, when his samadhi concentration is very good, he felt like it had to be done this way, but Ajahn Chah would tell him, oh, you should do it this way or contemplate the body. And that's something similar. It's like, oh, when, when you, maybe you're very firm minded, you know, maybe it's difficult to accept any other teaching. So it's something that we have to be careful of. Um, and maybe one last story is that, uh, we hear on this day that, oh, we have to Paribada Puja and everyone 
like I began with, oh, that's how we offer up our practice, our Dhamma practice as homage you know, to the teacher, to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And especially on days like today, this is the day when we should do it. Right? So whether it's you're doing your chanting and offering it or your Dhamma practice, meditation, maybe joining like this, uh, etc., then, then we offer it in that way. And this can be a very powerful practice. Um, yeah, there's, there was once when I was in my third rains retreat. That was what, 2009? In 2009, uh, in that rains retreat, I had made the determination I'm going to stay up, do that Nessa Chick practice like that other monk that I told you about. So stay up, sitters practice all night. And there were other monks who did it as well. We had a group of monks, I think it was about eight to 12 of us. Um, so we'd stay, stay up practicing at night. You could practice wherever you wanted in the monastery. And it was really tough, really difficult to do. The body wants to sleep at night. And, you know, sometimes you would, it'd be okay, but you would notice that, oh, even you lean back. If you sit in a chair, you're probably going to fall asleep. <laughs> it was kind of like that. Or if you, even you, you rest against the wall, you'd probably fall asleep as well. Your know, body was so tired, you know, still rest a bit in the day, but no matter what, it was, it was a tough practice. So I'd undertaken this and, you know, it was kind of tough, but I'd made the determination already to do that for three months. And so hopefully this story is appropriate to tell. I don't know how many people in what Mark channel will understand, but <clears throat> uh, the, the, in that, the, in that rains retreat, then Venerable Ajahn Anand's mother was very, very sick and we had to rush just uh, himself and attendant monks would take the, we call sataha, sort of an emergency, uh, I believe it's translated as, uh, you know, allowable to take seven day leave basically from the monastery, from the rains retreat, but you have to come back before the seventh dawn. And so we, we went to the hospital then, Anand's mother was, was unconscious in the, in the emergency uh, room and she was close to, to passing basically. The doctors didn't think she would, she would last, um, she, she would live for very much longer. So we rushed there at night, etc. And so we went there and um, our practice was, you know, we had a, a group of other monks and other monks were visiting as well, but we would go in and do some chanting for her. And uh, we do itipiso, swakato, supadipanno, maybe nine times, maybe more. And Jinapanjara Gata would do that nine times, um, chant, offer that. And the amazing thing was that every time we chanted, her heartbeat would, would come up. And the doctors were amazed at how this happened. Um, and you could see that she could receive the sort of uh, the chant, basically, or she developed her, her qualities so much that even being unconscious could receive the, the sort of power of that chant or it'd bring up, you know, the goodness, brighten up her mind, etc. But she was known to be a very, very good uh, person. She stayed in the monastery, lived there, and you know, obviously had a great kubhajan as, as uh, her son. So <laughs> you could just imagine the, and everyone said she had very good character, etc. But uh, I'd taken up this practice of to stay up and then uh, when in my mind it was going to be like the last time of uh, the, you know when if the kubhajan tells you, you you can stop that practice then you can stop it <laughs> so my mind was thinking that oh maybe ajahnan will tell me that no problem you can rest in the day because you wouldn't have time to rest in the day because there'd be so much going on in the day and so you know, I'm thinking this in my mind and Venerable Ajahnan, they're getting back to, to take a rest in, in, in another place in, in Bangkok. And I thought I could, I could probably go along, etc. And Venerable Ajahnan turns to me and says, oh, you're doing the Nessa Chik practice. Um, so just stay here and practice here overnight. Um, look after uh, he, my, you know, my mother, etc. And so, oh, you know, so the only answer to that again is like what the other monk said is crap. 
<laughs> which means yes. And so there were all the monks gone back and, and I was, there's just a waiting room where there's seats there and the room the, the, where she had a private room is only herself in there. And I had made a, you know, I guess didn't really know what to do, but I made it my practice that I'd go in there and do chanting by myself. Like I wasn't, didn't need to be, how to say, a bit shy because there'd be other monks around, but I could go in and chant and I found it was really uplifting for me, even the, to overcome those hindrances of drowsiness that I'd been sort of fighting over, maybe in the monastery, able to overcome that. And so it was part of the practice of going there, chanting itipisos and Jina Panjaragata nine times like that, you know, go out a bit and come back in again and then chant like that. And like I said, every time then her heartbeat uh, improved, you could say, and she lived for much longer than what the doctors thought just because of, of that. Uh, and so in this, maybe the two points that you can take out of it is that all this practice that you're doing now, you know, it does have results. You, know, you develop yourself, you do your chanting, you do your developing goodness, Dhamma practice, and later on, it will have its results. The mind will be brightened. You can see when people are practicing, when they grow older and their minds become brighter, they're more happier to be alone, to practice, to chant, rather than someone who doesn't practice, become more maybe grumpy, you know, ir you know irritated, etc easier and less patience, maybe nothing to do. And then that, you know, um, and this you can see very clearly, but even moments before close to, to passing to death, you know, the mind will be uplifted. It can recognize chanting, maybe the mind's in a very good place, or even you're able to practice with those, that sickness, that, that pain and use that in your practice. Um, so that's one thing that I got from that. But the second was the powerfulness of this Padipada Puja, because every time I went in, I felt like this was an offering that I was doing to my teacher through his mother. And I would go there, chant, and it bring up so much joy that I was able to, to do this, to, to offer this to, to my teacher here yeah, through chanting and even now re reflecting on it you can uplift the mind you know uh, and so all of you as well hopefully you know i'm sure you all have your own good experiences with that practice and maybe you do your own practice as normal but on maybe special days like this you can offer that practice up and it becomes something that you know, uplifts you even more. Uh, you, you know, you're doing the same practice, but you get maybe more benefits because you're you're giving, devoting that. You know, maybe you have a set amount that you're 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 doing, and you, you you do that, and you feel so much more uplifted. The mind's brighter. Maybe you can overcome the hindrances even more than usual, and so that's something you can try you know maybe days like this Ajahn Chah Memorial Ajahn Chah days or even for three days um, you know the important Buddhist holy days etc there's always a opportunity for you to do that and so it's a very powerful practice <clears throat> and so I guess in conclusion then uh, we should develop this, you know, mudita, we call this when we come to a Krubhajan's birthday, it's like we're sharing mudita jitta, which is like a mind of mudita, appreciative joy, we appreciate uh, you know, sympathetic joy, we rejoice at all those goodness, those good qualities. And so it is something that we have to recognize those qualities, right? When we recognize and we can respect them, give them importance, um, give homage to them, you could say. But also what it does is it also 
allows us to recognize those qualities in ourselves and try to develop them more because we see the importance of them, just like that metta, purity, you know, the stories that I shared, you know, they can inspire us to develop those qualities in ourselves more, to recognize them. And sometimes we can read the suttas and it can be a bit tough to read sometimes, but with these teachers who you really respect and honor that they've practiced it, they kind of live the Dhamma in a way. So when just seeing them can very, you know, inspire you a lot to, you know, in the practice, that it isn't something so dry and that there's this, like, you know, it's Nibbana, enlightenment, there's nothing, it does, it's not like that at all, you know. And so being able to see this in, you could say in the flesh even, or, or, or you know, you experience it, you see it, it can really inspire you, but also to develop that quality in yourself, further yourself in the practice, when you can recognize those good qualities in the teacher, in yourself, and you can see it in others as well, in your loved ones, and you can be more sympathetic or, or focus on those qualities much more, right? You rejoice in their happiness, their goodness, and that's what mudita is. You, you're rejoicing, you wish that they gain more happiness or it, it prolongs their happiness, their success, all the good things they enjoy, you wish that it can last and, and, and continue on. And not just your loved ones, but then other people as well. You can also still rejoice, uh, have that recognition of those good qualities in them as well. And all the way to people that maybe you have ill will, jealousy, aversion, irritation for, you can put that aside and just focus on just those good qualities. You know, just look at that, like the rot, the, the mango example before, just focus on the good. Take the ripe part, don't take the rotten part. Um, and that can overcome or any sort of envy, ill will, jealousy. So I hope that some of these stories and maybe teachings, teachings uh, is helpful, gives inspiration to, to you. Also apologize if any of this is uh, inappropriate, these stories. Um, but hopefully we're all sort of kind of on the same team. We all have a lot of faith. We're all here with great faith on, in, in the teacher, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, so hopefully uh, can in, inspire you in your practice. And uh, I hope that we can give our puja, our Padipada puja on this day. And we could say on this journey through samsara of happiness and suffering, birth and death, that will all be supports for each other to grow in good qualities, to grow in the Dhamma, and so that we may all attain the liberation, the complete freedom from suffering. <clears throat>